You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Death as Metamorphosis of Life. This is the last lecture in the collection, Lecture 7, entitled How Can I Find Christ? Given in Zurich on October 16, 1918. Today we'll continue the reflections we began last week about the role our soul must play in the spiritual world in the future and how to prepare for this. In particular, I'd like to talk in more detail about how we must experience the Christ mystery after we've prepared ourselves for that through the spiritual ideals I've mentioned last time. To begin with the general statement that will be explained in detail later on. Seeing from the vantage point of spiritual science, with the methods spiritual science provides, our soul is connected on the one hand to our physical body and on the other to our spiritual life. And there are essentially three things in our soul that move us toward the spiritual world, three desires or urges, we might say. We would have to deny these three urges inherent in our soul if we want to refuse to learn anything about the spiritual world. At any rate, first of all, we have an inner urge to know the divine, to use a general term. Second, we have the desire to know Christ. Of course, we're talking here about human beings in the current period of development. And third, we have the urge to come to know what is generally called spirit, or Holy Spirit. As you know, some people deny that we have these three tendencies, and especially in the 19th century, we have seen to what extremes people all over Europe will go in their outright rejection of the divine. In spiritual science, of course, we do not doubt the divine or the spiritual realm in which we can say the divine resides. Based on that perspective and conviction, then, we can ask why people deny what in the Trinity we call God the Father. Spiritual science reveals that people who deny God the Father, that is, the divine as such, as well as the divine as it was revered in the Israelite religion, suffer from a real physical defect, a physical illness or physical deficiency. They suffer from a problem in the physical body. In other words, according to spiritual science, to be an atheist means to have some kind of illness, one that physicians cannot cure, of course. Indeed, physicians are often suffering from the same affliction, one that is not yet recognized by modern medicine as an illness. Nevertheless, Spiritual science finds this disease present in all those who deny what they must feel in our time, not through the constitution of their soul, but through that of their physical body. 
When people deny what a healthy and wholesome feeling in their body tells them is true, namely that a divine element permeates the world, they become physically ill, according to the spiritual scientific definition of illness. In addition, very many people deny Christ, and spiritual science considers this denial a matter of destiny that concerns our soul life. According to spiritual science, denying Christ is a misfortune. To to deny God is to be ill, but to deny Christ is to be unfortunate indeed. Whether we can find our way to Christ is in a sense a matter of destiny and and influences our individual karma. It is a misfortune not to have a relationship to Christ. On the other hand, denying the Holy Spirit signals a certain stupor of one's own spirit. We are made of body, soul, and spirit, and we can have disorders or deficiencies in any one or all three of them. There is a real physical, pathological deficiency present in atheists. Failing to find in this life a connection to the world where the Christ is revealed is a true misfortune. Inability to find the spirit inside oneself is a kind of stupor, a sort of subtle idiocy, which is not yet recognized by the medical establishment. The question to consider, then, is how we can find our way to Christ, and that is our topic for today. How we can find Christ in the course of our life through our own soul. The question of how to find Christ is often asked by seriously searching souls, but to answer it meaningfully requires considering it in a certain historical context. We'll now look at that historical context that will lead us in the course of our reflections today to discover an answer to that question of how to find Christ. As you know, from the perspective of spiritual science, Our current historical epoch began in the 15th century, approximately in 1413. But if we don't want to get confused by numbers, we can simply say that in the 15th century human soul life became what it still is today. Modern historians generally don't want to accept this because they're only looking at outer facts and have no idea that before the 15th century people were thinking and feeling quite differently and acted out very different impulses. They were radically different from what we are now in our soul life. History as it is presented in modern textbooks is merely a convenient fabrication, a fiction, and therefore historians have no understanding of what we're talking about here. The epoch that came to an end in 1413 had begun in 747 BCE that is, in the 8th century before Christ. Accordingly, in spiritual science, we consider the Greco-Roman cultural epoch to have lasted from 747 BCE until 1413. As you know, this is the epoch when the mystery of Golgotha took place, roughly in the first third of that period. For centuries, the mystery of Golgotha was the pivotal point in the life of many people, in their thinking and feeling. In fact, human souls grasped the mystery of Golgotha in a particularly emotional 
and intense way in the period preceding our modern time, that is, before the 15th century. This was followed by the period in which the Gospels were widely read in all segments of the population. This was also the time when the debates about the historical authenticity and accuracy of the Gospels began. And as you know, those disputes have continued to our day and have been carried to extremes. Though these arguments play a big role, especially among Protestant theologians, we will not discuss its various developments in detail, but merely consider what can be said today about what people intend with this quarrel about the mystery of Golgotha. In our materialistic age, people insist on having material proof for everything. In the discipline of history, the term quote-unquote proven refers to anything that can be substantiated with documents. When historians come across records, they assume that the events recorded in those documents actually happened. Most likely the Gospels cannot be said to be that conclusive. As you know from my book, Christianity as Mystical Fact, the Gospels are certainly not historical documents or records. Rather, they are books of inspiration and initiation. In the past, they have often been taken as historical records, but through careful research, people have found out that they are definitely not historical records. It has also been found that all the other parts of the Bible are not historical records either, and Adolf Harnack, who is a renowned theologian, although unjustly, though unjustly so, has done more research on the Bible and found that everything we can historically verify about the person of Jesus Christ fits on one quarto page, as he put it. Strange as it may sound, the only part of that statement that is correct is that even what we might write on that quarto page is actually not true and cannot be proven historically. What is true is only that there are no tenable historical records about the mystery of Golgotha. From the perspective of modern historical research, we have to admit that there is no outer evidence for the mystery of Golgotha, and for good reason. Divine wisdom decreed that the mystery of Golgotha should not be provable by external materialistic means for the simple reason that this most important event in the history of the earth should be understandable only spiritually, in a supersensory way. Those looking for outer materialistic evidence will not find any, but because of their criticism they'll only find out that there is no evidence. In other words, the mystery of Golgotha forces us to make a decision. Either we resort to the spiritual realm, or we cannot understand the mystery of Golgotha at all. In a sense, then, the mystery of Golgotha is to force our soul to turn away from any sensory proof and toward the spiritual realm. Thus there is a good reason why there is no scientific or any other historical evidence for the mystery of Golgotha. Indeed, the important contribution of spiritual science will be to lead people to a spiritual understanding of the mystery of Golgotha in the way I've described many times before. 
spiritual science will come into its own in this connection, when all external sciences that are based exclusively on the sensory realm will have to admit that the mystery of Golgotha is no longer accessible to it, when even critical theology begins to act in an unchristian way and only the spiritual path to the mystery of Golgotha is left. You may wonder what the situation of humanity was like at the time when the mystery of Golgotha occurred during the fourth post-Atlantean epoch in the Greco-Roman cultural period. Well, you already know the significance of that period, and you know that humanity undergoes a development throughout history that recapitulates the evolution of the various members of the human being. As you know, in the Egypto-Chaldean cultural period, which preceded the year 747 BCE, human beings developed what we call their sentient soul. In the Greco-Roman cultural period, they developed their intellectual or mind soul. And ever since the year 1913, in our fifth post-Atlantean epoch, we've been developing our consciousness soul. In other words, the Greco-Roman cultural period between 747 BCE and 1413 was primarily the period for educating humanity, to speak with Lessing here, in how to use the intellectual or mind-soul in freedom. In the middle of that time period, that is, the point at which the ascending line of development of the consciousness soul becomes a descending one, This midpoint, as you can easily figure out yourself, occurred in the year 333 after the birth of Christ. Clearly, then, the year 333, the midpoint of the Greco-Roman cultural period, is a very important year in human development. And, exactly 333 years earlier, the event that led to the mystery of Golgotha occurred, namely, the birth of Christ. To fully appreciate the situation of humanity, we must reflect on what would have happened if the mystery of Golgotha had not occurred. We can properly appreciate the significance of the mystery of Golgotha when we consider what would have happened if that event had not taken place. Obviously, if it had not happened, humanity would have reached the middle of the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, the year 333, only by virtue of its own elementary powers. Humanity would have had to develop out of itself all the capacities belonging to the intellectual or mind-soul, so that we would have had them available in the following centuries. This developmental trajectory was radically changed through the occurrence of the mystery of Golgotha. That is, something very different happened on account of that event something tremendously different from what would have taken place without it. Taking a closer look at the mystery of Golgotha, we see that it is the the central and special event that gives meaning to the whole earth. And its most important characteristic is that we can only understand it through a transcendental approach, a spiritual approach. There is no other way to the mystery of Golgotha, except a spiritual one. You may wonder why this is the case. 
Well, the reason for this is that although around the year 333, in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, people were approaching the full flowering of their intellectual or mind-soul, in their physical life, between birth and death, they were very far from being able to understand the true nature of the mystery of Golgotha with their ordinary human capacities. In other words, no matter how old we get or how much we mature and learn, the capacities we develop as a result of our physical development between birth and death will not enable us to understand the mystery of Golgotha. That is also the reason why Christ's contemporaries, even those who loved Jesus, such as the, as the disciple, as, excuse me, such as the apostles, could understand what they were supposed to understand, namely, who Christ Jesus really was, only because they had a certain kind of atavistic clairvoyance. It was through that atavistic clairvoyance that they had any idea at all of who was living in their midst. Their own human capacities would not have been sufficient to make this understanding possible. Moreover, they wrote the Gospels with the help of ancient mystery books. Thus they wrote the mighty Gospels based on their ancient atavistic clairvoyance, not on the basis of natural human capacities they had developed by that time. However, our soul continues to develop even after it has crossed the threshold of death, and in the process its powers of understanding grow, and thus, even after death, the soul comes to understand more and more. Interestingly, out of their love for Christ, the apostles had prepared themselves for living in Christ after death, and they were only able to fully understand the mystery of Golgotha with their own human capacities three hundred years later. In other words, the apostles and disciples who lived with Christ entered the spiritual world after their physical death, and in that world their capacities and powers continued to grow much as they do here in the course of our physical life. This means that at the moment of death our understanding is not as developed as it will be two hundred years later. It wasn't until almost three hundred years after the event that Christ's contemporaries were able to understand out of their own powers what they had seen here on earth. That is, it was only after two or three hundred years of further development in the spiritual realm, where we dwell between death and rebirth, that they could understand this event they had seen firsthand in their life on earth. And once they had come to such an understanding, they began to inspire people living here on earth. In fact, the second and third century writings of the so-called fathers of the church must be read in this light. We understand what they wrote about Christ Jesus when we realize who inspired them. The inspiration from the dead contemporaries of Christ Jesus was written down by the Church Fathers in the third century. The Church Fathers had a strange way of expressing themselves in their writing about Christ Jesus, one that people nowadays, and we'll talk more about them shortly, find nearly impossible to understand. For example, our modern materialistic culture 
heaps disdain on one of them in particular, namely on Tertullian, because he is supposed to be the author of a statement that is anathema to this culture. Tertullian said, quote, Credo quia absurdum est, close quote, that is, quote, I believe what is foolish and not what is reasonable. Close quote. Tertullian lived at the time when Christ's dead disciples in the spiritual world began inspiring people here on earth. And he was one of the people so inspired. Like everyone else, Tertullian wrote in accordance with his individual constitution and style. After all, whatever inspirations may come, we always receive them in our own individual way. Thus Tertullian passed on the inspirations he had received, not in a pure and unadulterated fashion, but refracted by his ability to express himself and his natural human limitations. First, he lived in a mortal body, and second, he was in a certain way very passionate and even fanatic. Thus he wrote as was natural and typical for him, and his writings now seem very strange to us when we consider them rightly. As proper study will show, Tertullian, a Roman citizen, was a very eloquent and moving writer, even though he did not have much of a literary education. Indeed, in a sense, it was Tertullian who who made Latin a language fit for Christianity. He was the one who found a way to make Latin, which is really the most prosaic and purely theoretical language, excuse me, purely rhetorical language, glow with spirit and holy passion. And that's why we find a true living soul in his works, especially in his title De Carne Christi, On the Flesh of Christ, and in the book in which he refutes all the accusations brought against the Christians back then. These works are written with great holy passion and magnificent eloquence. As can be seen from his De Carne Christi, though a Roman himself, Tertullian was nevertheless nevertheless, impartial regarding Rome and the Romans. He passionately defended the Christians against persecution by the Romans. He fervently condemned the Romans for torturing the Christians to make them deny their faith in Christ Jesus and went so far as to say that their actions in judging the Christians more than sufficiently prove the Romans' injustice. Basically, Tertullian told the Romans, quote, you must change your usual judicial process and not apply it when you're dealing with Christians. In all other cases, you use torture to force witnesses to tell the truth, to confess what they really think and to stop telling lies. In contrast, when you're torturing Christians, you want them to deny what they really believe. That is, as judges, you act toward the Christians in the opposite way as you do when judging others. In all other cases, you use torture to find out the truth. But in the case of the Christians, you do it to hear them tell a lie. Close quote. In a nutshell, this is what Tertullian said to the Romans, and his words really hit the nail on the head. Tertullian's writings reveal him as a courageous, determined man who realized how idolatrous and empty the Romans' worship of their gods really was, and openly denounced it. At the same time, 
he showed himself in all his writings as having a close relationship to the spiritual world. For example, he wrote about demons as though they were his personal acquaintances. Among other things, Tertullian challenged his readers to ask the demons whether Christ really is the true God, as the Christians claim. As Tertullian put it, quote, put a true Christian next to a person possessed by a demon, and when you get the demon to talk, you'll find that he admits being a demon because he cannot help telling the truth. Close quote. Indeed, as Tertullian knew, demons always tell the truth when they're asked a question and never lie in response. Tertullian concluded from this, quote, Thus, the demons will also tell you the truth, and when the Christians ask them sincerely whether Christ Jesus is the true God, they, demons, will answer that he is indeed the true God. Of course, the demons hate and fight against Christ, but they will still tell you that he is the true God. Close quote. In other words, Tertullian based his argument not on the testimony of other people, but on that of demons. According to him, demons are witnesses that aren't just saying what we want to hear, but that truly confess that Christ is God. That is what Tertullian discovered for himself. Clearly, reading Tertullian, who was so obviously under the influence of the the above-described inspiration, one can't help wondering what he himself believed in the depths of his soul. Indeed, we can learn much from Tertullian's deepest beliefs, because he already sensed what was not revealed to people until long after his own death. Basically, Tertullian believed first that human beings at his time, that is, in the late second century CE, were so constituted as to be subject to the shame and disgrace of denying the greatest event in the history of the world, an event they could never come to on their own. Second, Tertullian believed that the human soul was too weak to understand this pivotal event, and third, he believed that if people follow only what their mortal body makes them capable of, they will find it impossible to establish a relationship to the mystery of Golgotha. These three things are at the core of what Tertullian believed, and on that basis he once said, quote, The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed, because men must need be ashamed of it. And the Son of God died. It is by all means to be believed, because it is absurd. Close quote. His words are, quote, Prursus credibile est quia ineptum est. meaning that it is credible precisely because it is absurd or foolish. Tertullian is imputed to have said, Credo quia absurdum est, but this sentence does not appear anywhere in Tertullian's work or in the work of any other church father. The previous sentence, however, does appear in Tertullian's book. Unfortunately, the misquoted sentence is all most people know about Tertullian and his work. The third important thing he said is, quote, and he was buried and rose again. The fact is certain, because it is impossible, close quote. We must believe it precisely because it is impossible. As you can imagine, these three statements of Tertullian appear particularly appalling 
to people in our modern and clever times. You can imagine the reaction of your typical dyed-in-the-wool educated materialist to the notion that Christ was crucified, and we must believe it because it is humiliating and shameful. Christ died, and we must believe it because it is absurd. Christ was truly raised from the dead, and we must believe it because it is impossible. Well, you can easily see what people with a monist worldview would have to say to that. Now, thanks to the inspiration he received, Tertullian was an unusually keen judge of human nature for his time. He realized what path humanity was pursuing in his time. In his time, humanity was living through the Greco-Roman cultural period in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch and moving toward the future. Now at a point as many years in the future as the mystery of Golgotha was in the past, certain spiritual powers had intended to guide earthly development in a direction very different from the one it took as a result of the occurrence of the mystery of Golgotha. That is, Tertullian's time, the year 333, the point exactly, 333 years after the mystery of Golgotha, was the midpoint, and the new direction in earthly development was planned for 333 years after that, namely for the year 666. This is the year the writer of the book of Revelation speaks of so passionately, and I recommend that you read those passages about the year 666. Certain spiritual powers had intended for certain things to happen to humanity in that year, things that would have happened if the mystery of Golgotha had not taken place. Those powers wanted to use the descending line of development of the intellectual or mind-soul that began in 333, the year that this development reached its peak, to steer humanity onto a very different track from the one the divine beings connected with us since the beginning, since the Saturn evolution had intended for us. Essentially, what those powers intended was to give us, through a kind of revelation already in 666, what was otherwise not to enter our development until later, namely the consciousness soul and its contents. If those powers, beings opposed to our evolution but who want to usurp and rule it, had been able to carry out their intentions, humanity would have been as surprised in 666 by suddenly having a consciousness soul as it will be long after we're gone. This is typical of what those beings who love humanity but hate the gods always do. They want to move to an earlier time all those things planned for us by the spiritual beings who have our best interests at heart. The latter intend for those things to happen in their due course when humanity is ready for them, rather than prematurely. In this case, what is planned for the middle of our epoch, that is, for 1,080 years after the year 1413, namely the year 2493, would have been injected into humanity by Aramonic Luciferic powers already as early as 666. <clears throat> However, human beings will not be ready 
until 2493, where the conscious comprehension of their own personality is concerned. Those Aramonic Luciferic powers wanted to give us our consciousness soul at that earlier time. But in the process, they would have changed our nature so that it would be impossible for us to find the way to the spirit self, life spirit and spirit human. That is, they would have cut off our path to the future and taken us over for a very different kind of development. Fortunately, none of that happened in the grand and devilish way it was planned. But traces of it can still be found in history because certain things happened that, though carried out by people, were actually instigated by certain spiritual beings. That is, people merely acted as puppets and the spiritual beings pulled the strings. For example, the emperor Justinian was one such puppet of those beings and acted under their influence and direction when he closed the schools of philosophy in Athens in 529. Justinian was a fervent enemy of ancient Greek wisdom and everything connected with it, and by shutting down the schools he expelled the last remnants of Greek learning and Aristotelian Platonic philosophy and forced scholars and philosophers to flee to Persia. Earlier in the 5th century, Zeno Isauricus, Isauricus perhaps, had already expelled other Greek sages from Edessa, and they and Syrian scholars had fled to Nibisi. And there in Persia, as the year 666 approached, the representatives of the most exquisite and outstanding learning gathered at the, the Academy of Gandhishapur. Most of them had come from Greece and had ignored the mystery of Golgotha. The faculty at the Academy of Gandhishapur was inspired by Luciferic Aramonic powers. The development that those powers had wanted to occur in 666, namely the introduction of the consciousness soul at that early point, and the consequent cutting off of our future development was supported by the Academy of Gandhishapur. If that development had occurred, then extremely learned and exceptionally brilliant people would have appeared in various places in the course of the seventh century, and their mission would have been to spread in their wanderings the culture of 666 as it had been planned by the Academy of Gandhishapur all over Western Asia, North Africa, Southern Europe, and eventually all of Europe. This culture would have directed people's attention, already back then, exclusively to their own personality, their consciousness soul. It was not possible for this to occur because the world had already taken on a different form and no longer provided the ground on which such events could have developed. As a result, the jolt the Academy of Gandhishapur was to give Western culture was blunted. Instead of producing the kind of wisdom compared to which our current outer knowledge is a mere trifle, and spiritually revealing the wisdom about everything we will gradually discover through experiments and the natural sciences up to the year 2493, 
We only have the vestiges of all this in what Arab scholars brought with them to Spain. That is, instead of brilliant and magnificent learning, we only have remnants of past great wisdom, and these remnants are only blunted and not as vivid as was intended, and also Islam, the teachings of Muhammad. In other words, Islam has taken the place of what should have come from the academy of Gandhi Shapur. Ultimately, through the mystery of Golgotha, the world was steered away from that detrimental development. This redirection is due to the earlier occurrence of the mystery of Golgotha, and also to the fact that it is an event that cannot be understood with the usual human capacities that we develop between birth and death. As a result, the development I described above occurred in Western cultures, namely the inspiration coming from the dead, which we have seen in Tertullian. This inspiration turned people's attention to the mystery of Golgotha, and thus to something very different from the influences that would have come from the Academy of Gandhi Shapur. Thanks to these developments, a grand but devilish wisdom, which was cultivated by the Academy of Gandhi Shapur, could not get a foothold. But at the same time, the spread of that wisdom for the benefit of humanity was also prevented. Much of the inspiration coming from the dead was passed on by people only in fragmentary, incomplete or refracted form, but it still saved humanity from undergoing what would have happened, what would have entered the human soul if the Academy of Gandhishapur had been successful in carrying out its plan. Events such as the ones planned by the Academy of Gandhishapur take place behind the scenes of the world's outer development in the spiritual realm. Though they have a connection to such events, they take place in the spiritual realm, and therefore we cannot really judge them. Neither the events intended by the Academy of Gandhishapur nor the mystery of Golgotha, solely on the basis of what happens in the physical world. To fully understand such events, we must look much, much deeper than people usually think. As I've explained, there are indeed traces in the world of what should have happened but was blunted, so that instead of something grand and brilliant, we now have Islam. Clearly, something did happen to humanity, in particular the impulse of Gandhi Shapur, the Neo-Persian impulse, reintroduced the Zarathustra impulse anachronistically at the inappropriate time. And as a result, humanity as a whole suffered a sort of inner breakdown, if I may put it like this, that has had an impact on our physical body. The impulse people received back then affected their body, and to this day we are born with that same effect. This impulse is really the above-mentioned sickness people have been infected with, and its expression is the denial of God the Father. Please don't misunderstand me. Modern, civilized people everywhere have a thorn in their flesh, so to speak. As you know, St. Paul had much to say about that thorn in the flesh, including many prophecies. He was an especially advanced person for his time and therefore already had that thorn in his flesh. But the rest of humanity has had it only since the 7th century. 
this thorn will spread more and more and become ever more important. For example, people who succumb fully to this thorn, this sickness, for it is really a thorn in the physical body, an illness, will become atheists. They will deny God and the divine realm. In modern civilizations, everyone has a predisposition to atheism. It's only a matter of whether we give in to it or not. In other words, we all have within us the illness that can goad us into denying the divine, even though our true nature would lead us to acknowledge it. In a sense, our nature became slightly mineralized in the past. It regressed in its development. And as a result, we all carry the disease of God-denial, of atheism, in us. This disease has a number of effects. Among other things, it creates a stronger bond of attraction between our soul and our physical body, a bond that is stronger than in previous times and also stronger than what our true nature calls for. In a sense, a strong bond is forged between soul and body, And although the soul, by virtue of its own nature, is not intended to take part in the body's destiny, this bond joins its fate more and more to that of the body, even in the moments of birth and death. What the sages at the Academy of Gandhi-Shapur wanted to achieve, and what, in a more amateurish way, secret societies in our time also want, is nothing less than to make people very wise for life on earth. Their plan was to do this by inculcating people's souls with this wisdom and thus letting the soul have a part in death. After passing through the portal of death, these souls would then not have been inclined to participate in spiritual life or their subsequent incarnations. In other words, the intention was to cut off our future development The beings connected with the academy of Gandhi-Shapur wanted to seize humanity for themselves and for a very different world. They wanted to tear us out of our earthly development to keep us from fulfilling our mission here of learning and developing slowly and gradually so that we can eventually come to the spirit self, life spirit and spirit human. If those beings had had their way, our soul would have come closer to the earth than it was supposed to. Dying, which is the body's destiny, would also have become that of the soul. This was prevented from happening by the mystery of Golgotha. That event released us from the close relationship to death that was about to be forged. To counterbalance the closer bond between soul and body, that had been forged by a certain stream in world evolution, Christ bound the soul more closely to the spirit than had originally been intended. Thus, the mystery of Golgotha linked the soul more intimately to the spirit than it had been destined to be. On that basis, we can now look deeply into the connection between the mystery of Golgotha and the innermost powers of human nature, and how it developed through the millennia. To really understand the mystery of Golgotha historically, in the right way, we must compare the relationship between body and soul 
that Ahriman and Lucifer decreed for it, excuse me, decreed for us to the above described relationship between soul and spirit. Let me read that again. To really understand the mystery of Golgotha historically in the right way, we must compare the relationship between body and soul that Ahriman and Lucifer decreed for us to the above described relationship between soul and spirit. Interestingly, the Catholic Church, which was strongly influenced by the remnants of the impulses from the Academy of Gandhi Shapur, decreed dogmatically in 869 at the Eighth Ecumenical Council in Constantinople that it is not necessary to believe in the Spirit. The rulers of the Church issued this decree because they did not want to have to enlighten everyone about the mystery of Golgotha, but wanted to cover it in darkness instead. Thus in 869 the Catholic Church practically abolished the Spirit. The new dogma that was instituted at that time stipulates that believing in the Spirit is not necessary. Believing in body and soul is fully sufficient. In addition, it was stipulated that the soul has something spirit-like in it also. Essentially, then, the Catholic Church, back then, did away with the insight that we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. And it did so essentially under the influence of the Academy of Gandhi Shapur. As you can see, history is not always in truth the way it is presented for everyday ordinary use and for this or that purpose. As we've seen, the mystery of Golgotha brought human beings closer to the Spirit. As a result, two forces coexist in all of us, the one that makes us death-like in our soul and the one that frees us from death by leading us inwardly to the Spirit. As I've explained, the atheist tendency in us is a kind of disease, and we all carry the disposition for it inside us simply on account of having a physical body and living in a civilized society. Nevertheless, according to spiritual science, denying God, being an atheist, is a disease, and everyone is susceptible to developing it. Only when we find our way to God through Christ can we truly say that we're not denying God. Just as the body carries a tendency to sickness within it, a tendency to deny God, so we also have a wholesome healing force within us, because as a result of the mystery of Golgotha, we have the Christ power within, as I've often described before. And Christ is our Savior and healer in the true sense of the word, the one who heals the sicknesses that can make us into atheists. Christ against the denial of God, the healer of the inner sickness I've described. In many ways, our time is a recapitulation and renewal of what happened in the past, partly through the mystery of Golgotha, partly through the events of 333, and partly through those of 666. There are very specific consequences involved here. And to properly understand the mystery of Golgotha, we must be clear that it cannot be understood at all 
with the powers we develop by living in a physical body between birth and death. Even Christ's contemporaries, his apostles and disciples, were not able to understand it on the basis of their human powers until the third century, that is long after their death. All these things play a part in our development and give rise to many different turns of events, among them the following. We are in a very different position in our time than Christ's contemporaries or the people who lived in the subsequent centuries up to the seventh century. After all, we are living in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, which is already far advanced. We are living in the twentieth century. This means that by the time we are born as soul and leave the spiritual world to enter the sensory world, we have had many experiences in the spiritual realm during the centuries before that birth. Just as Christ's contemporaries did not come to a full understanding of the mystery of Golgotha until many centuries later, so we, then, experience the same thing many centuries before we are born, except in the reverse, as a mirror image. This applies only to people born in our time, all of whom carry with them at birth a sort of pale reflection of the mystery of Golgotha, which is a mirror image of what people experienced in the spiritual world hundreds of years after the mystery of Golgotha. While we can only perceive this impulse if we have spiritual supersensory perception, we can all experience the effects of it in ourselves. And by consciously and attentively experiencing this impulse, we can find the answer to the question we started with, namely the question of how we can find our way to Christ. To find Christ, we need to have the following experiences. First, the experience of striving for self-knowledge. We must strive to know ourselves as well as we can within the constraints of our individual personality. And if we sincerely strive for self-knowledge, we will have to admit that we cannot really grasp what we are striving for. Our capacity to understand cannot keep up with what we are aiming for. We thus feel powerless in regard to our striving. This is, very, this is a very important experience, and all of us, as we examine ourselves honestly in the process of gaining self-knowledge, should feel this sense of powerlessness. Feeling powerless in this connection is healthy, for this feeling is nothing other than the awareness of a disease. <clears throat> After all, being sick and not feeling or knowing it is usually a sign of a particularly serious illness. By feeling our powerlessness to come to God on our own at any time in our life, we feel the above-mentioned sickness within us, the sickness that was implanted in us. And our sense of the sickness also tells us that because of the way our body is in the present time, our soul would be doomed to die with the body if nothing stepped in to save it. When we have immersed ourselves for some time in this intense feeling of powerlessness, a change will occur. This change comes from experiencing the sudden realization that if we don't abandon ourselves to what we can achieve through the powers of our physical body alone, 
but instead give ourselves over to what the Spirit offers us, then we can overcome this inner death of the soul. We will then be able to find our soul again and to connect with the Spirit. Once we get beyond the feeling of powerlessness, we'll experience, on the one hand, the nothingness of existence, and on the other hand, the glorification of existence based only on ourselves. In our powerlessness, we become aware of the sickness. At the same time, as we experience the powerlessness and our soul has become death-like, we also feel the Savior, the saving and healing power within us. As we sense the presence of the Savior within us, we realize that we carry something in our soul that can rise from the dead at any time through our own inner experience. These two experiences will lead us to finding Christ in our soul. This is the experience that awaits us in the future, as Angelus Silesius had already realized when he wrote the following profoundly meaningful words, quote, In vain the cross on Golgotha was raised. Thou hast not any part in its deliverance unless it be raised up within thy heart. Close quote. The cross of Golgotha is raised within us when we feel the two polar opposites, the powerlessness of our body and the resurrection through our spirit. This inner experience, consisting of two parts, is what truly leads us to an understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. Regarding this pivotal event, we cannot excuse our failure to understand it by pleading that we lack supersensory abilities. We don't need those. All we really need is to practice self-reflection and be willing to reflect on ourselves and to fight the arrogance that is so prevalent these days. It's generally this arrogance that prevents us from noticing that the more we rely exclusively on our own powers, the more arrogant we become in regard to them. When our arrogance renders us blind and numb so that we don't notice that our own powers make us powerless, then we will not be able to experience the inner death and resurrection. Then we will never feel the way Angelus Silesius did, as he expressed in these words, quote again, In vain the cross on Golgotha was raised, thou hast not any part in its deliverance unless it be raised within thy heart. Quote. Once we feel ourselves powerless, and then being restored from powerlessness, we will be so fortunate as to have a real relationship to Christ Jesus. For the above-described experience is a recapitulation of what we have experienced centuries earlier in the spiritual world. And the mirror image of that earlier experience is what we must be looking for in our soul, here on the physical plane. If you look inside, you'll find powerlessness. Seek and you will find, and after the powerlessness, you will find the release from powerlessness, the resurrection of the soul to the spirit. It is important to not let yourself be misled by what certain mystical movements and even religious denominations are preaching these days. For example, what Harnack is saying about Christ is not true. 
simply because what he says can be applied just as well to God as such. Read it for yourself, and you'll see that everything he states could just as well, and with as much justification, be said about the God of the Jews and about the God of the Muslims, and so on. Many of those who call themselves awakened these days claim, quote, I experience God within me, close quote, but they only experience God the Father. And even that is only a muted, pallid experience, because they do not realize that they are inwardly sick and are merely parroting traditional platitudes. Johannes Müller is a clear example of this trend. In any case, those quote-unquote awakened people do not have Christ, for experiencing Christ is not a matter of feeling God in our soul. Rather, we must feel both death in our soul on account of the body and the resurrection of the soul through the Spirit. Anyone can claim to feel God within himself or herself. Even the purely rhetorical theosophists make that claim. However, only when we go beyond that to the two experiences of powerlessness and resurrection from that powerlessness do we come to a true Christ experience. Then we're also on the spiritual path to understanding the mystery of Golgotha. We can then find the forces that stimulate certain spiritual powers and lead us to the mystery of Golgotha. You see, there's no need to worry about finding Christ through our own direct experience, for we have found him when we've found ourselves again after the experience of powerlessness, that is, when we fully experience and overcome that powerlessness. That feeling of powerlessness or nothingness will naturally pass when we honestly and without arrogance think about our own powers and abilities. And this feeling is indispensable and must precede the Christ impulse. Some clever mystics believe that finding the higher I, the God I, within their I, makes them true Christians. However, this is a far cry from what Christianity really is. Christianity must be based on this sentence by Silesius, quote, In vain the cross on Golgotha was raised. Thou hast not any part in its deliverance unless it be raised up within thy heart. Close quote. The details of life confirm that what I am saying here is true, and we can then move from these details to the all-suffusing feeling of powerlessness and the resurrection from that powerlessness. My dear friends, we would do well to take the first step toward that feeling of our physical body's powerlessness when confronted with divine truth, and we can do so fairly easily by cultivating the following realization. Doubtlessly in the depths of our soul we are all inclined toward the truth and consequently toward expressing that truth. Now precisely at the moment when we are about to speak the truth, and reflect on our intention to speak the truth, that is, when we can take that first step toward the experience of powerlessness described above. As we reflect on what we mean by speaking the truth, we come to the strange realization that Schiller already put in words in one of his votive tablets, quote, Soon as the soul begins to speak, then can the soul speak no more. Close quote. In other words, in the process, 
of being put into words, into language, what we inwardly really experience as truth, gets blunted. It is not killed or deadened in the process, but it begins to dull. Moreover, if we've learned anything about language, we know that proper names, words that designate one and only one thing, are the only correct words for the thing each designates. As soon as we use general terms, whether they're nouns, verbs, or adjectives, we're no longer articulating the whole truth. Indeed, truth then means realizing that with each sentence we say we're essentially and necessarily deviating from the truth. In spiritual science, we try to rise again from this realization that with every one of our statements we're expressing an untruth by adopting the method I've often described for you. As I've said before, in spiritual science what matters is not so much what is said, but rather how it is said. After all, what we say would also be subject to the feeling of powerlessness. You can see for yourself what I mean when you trace in my lectures, and even in my writings, how every topic is described from more than one viewpoint how everything is presented from various angles, because only then can we come close to understanding these topics. If you think that the words themselves are more than a kind of eurythmy, you are very much mistaken. Words are really nothing more than eurythmy carried out by the larynx with the help of the air. They are essentially merely gestures, except that they are not made with hands and feet but with the larynx instead. Thus we must realize that in speaking we are merely gesturing toward something, and to develop the right relationship to truth we must understand every word as a gesture toward what we want to express. That is, our words are gestures, pointers, or signs, and that is also what Eurythmy teaches us. Eurythmy essentially turns the whole person into a larynx, so that we express with our whole body what normally only the larynx expresses. Thus in Eurythmy we experience firsthand that even when we speak with sounds we're really only making gestures. For example, when we say the words father or mother in general, we can only express ourselves truthfully if the other person, our dialogue partner, lives as deeply in the same social element as we do and thus understands our gesture. We rise again from the powerlessness we can feel regarding language, we are resurrected from that powerlessness and overcome it, only when we understand that in the moment we open our mouth to speak, we must already be Christian. What has become of words, of the Logos, in the course of history, can be understood only if we reconnect the Logos with Christ. That is, we must realize that as our body becomes the vehicle of speech, it forces the truth downward, and as a result part of it dies on our lips. We can make it come to life again in Christ when we understand that we must spiritualize it. That is, mentally in our thinking we must include the Spirit rather than taking in only the words as such. This is what we must learn, my dear friends. I hope to be able to say more about this in tomorrow's public talk, but I'm not sure if there will be enough time. 
In any case, I'd like to speak about this to you today and hope it won't bother you if you hear it again tomorrow. First of all, I'd like to say to you what I've said in many public lectures, where I've described what you can find if you thoroughly study the essays written by Woodrow Wilson as I have studied them. Wilson wrote very interesting essays about American history, literature, and life. In a sense, he provided an impressive presentation of the American development from East to West, and he did so as an American, from his American perspective. In fact, his essays, which he originally presented as lectures and then wrote down, make compelling reading. They're entitled Mere Literature, and we can really learn what Americans are like by reading this book, because Wilson is the prototypical American. In an objective comparison, I put passages from Wilson's essays next to comparable ones from the writings of Hermann Grimm, who can be described as a prototypical German, or even Central European, of the 19th century. In fact, I find Grimm's writing style as appealing as I find Wilson's distasteful, but that's just my personal opinion. I love the way Grimm writes, but Wilson's style just grates on my ears. Still, we can be completely objective about this. Wilson, the prototypical American, writes brilliantly, magnificently about the development and history of the American people. However, something else must be considered when comparing Wilson's essays with those by Grimm, especially in their treatment of the method of history. There we find that some of Wilson's statements are almost identical, word for word, with Grimm's. Likewise, several of Grimm's sentences would fit easily into Wilson's essay and not change the meaning. Nevertheless, any direct borrowing is out of the question. I assure you that I'm not talking about borrowing or plagiarizing here. Instead, here we can learn firsthand, without becoming Philistines or bourgeois, that when two people say the same thing, it's not the same at all. The problem here is that Wilson describes his fellow countrymen in a much more forceful, lively, and suggestive way than Hermann Grimm ever did in his historical method. And yet Woodrow Wilson is practically speaking in Grimm's words. We have to wonder what's going on here. What causes this? As we study the matter more closely, what we find is that Hermann Grimm's style shows that every one of Grimm's sentences is the result of a hard, personal, individual struggle. Grimm, a luminary of nineteenth-century culture, wrote about all kinds of things, but everything ultimately grew directly out of his consciousness soul. Wilson's descriptions are brilliant, but as though possessed by something in his own subconscious. Indeed, there are traces of demonic possession here, There is something in his subconscious that inspired him, that fed him what he then wrote down. This demon expresses itself in a special way in an American of the twentieth century, speaks through Wilson's soul. That is the great and mighty reality we must become aware of. However, nowadays people are so lazy that when they read something, their response is usually to say that they've read the same thing elsewhere too. In other words, they focus only on the content. But now is the time when we must all learn that the content by itself doesn't matter as much anymore. Instead, what matters is that we understand others based on their words, 
and we must see those words as nothing more than gestures. Thus we must know who makes the gestures, for they determine what the words mean. Truly this is something we must get used to, because it is one of the greatest mysteries of even ordinary life, my friends. There is a great difference between sentences that have been struggled for and wrestled with by the personal I and those that have been given in some way as inspiration from above or below. Of course, we'll find sentences resulting from inspiration to be more suggestive and compelling because those that have been struggled for require that we also struggle in reading them. The time is coming when we will have to move away from merely looking at the literal verbatim meaning of what appears before our soul and instead must consider the person who is saying this or that. That is, we must focus not on the outer physical personality but rather on the whole human spiritual context. Accordingly, this must be our answer to the question of how to find Christ. For Christ cannot be found by means of any strange wool-gathering or through convenient mysticism. We can find Christ only if we have the courage to take our place in the midst of life, and that means that we must also feel the above-mentioned powerlessness in regard to language, powerlessness that our body has brought upon us because it has become the bearer of speech. That experience of powerlessness must be followed by the resurrection of the Spirit in the Word. That's the answer. It's not just a matter of the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In quotes. Another sentence that has often been misunderstood. Instead, it's already the sound that kills. And for the Spirit to give life again, we must connect our concrete, individual experience to Christ and the mystery of Golgotha. Thus the first step to finding Christ is this, seek, but not just by looking for the meaning of pretty words here and there, that's all people are used to these days. Instead we must seek the human context, looking at how the words emerge out of the place they are spoken from. This will become increasingly important in the future. If more of us would consider this, people would urge us so often to read this or that because the author appears to write completely in line with anthroposophy or theosophy. It doesn't matter so much that what words it doesn't matter so much what words are on the page. What matters is the spirit out of which a person speaks. Anthroposophy is not about spreading words, but about bringing a new spirit. And this is the spirit that beginning with the twentieth century must be the spirit of Christianity. My dear friends, this is what I wanted to add to what we've talked about a week ago. I am very glad it was possible to do this and that I could talk to you again about these issues that concern us all. I hope that we will soon be able to continue these talks here in Zurich. On this note, let us always remember, even when we are apart, that as anthroposophists we are always together in our soul. Let us remain united faithfully in this way, in the spirit of humanity that shall prevail. The end of lecture seven and the end of the lecture cycle or lecture collection.